Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Ring of Fire, Rachel Maddow, and Mother Jones Radio. electric cars began to appear on roads all over California. They were quiet and fast, produced no exhaust, and ran without gasoline. Ten years later, these futuristic cars were almost entirely gone. I think it will go down as one of the biggest blunders in the history of the automotive industry. A little over a year ago, General Motors rounded up dozens of popular electric cars called the EV1. The company had manufactured and leased those cars out, but then GM proceeded to destroy all the cars over the protest of their drivers. Actress Alexandra Paul was one of those people. She actually went to jail for trying to block the trucks taking the cars to be crushed. Alexandra and Chelsea Sexton, a former GM specialist, who was, by the way, the number one salesperson of GM's electric car, are both featured in the new documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car? And they join us now. Alexandra, this is a great movie. Tell us about it. Well, it's a documentary, and I happen to be interviewed in it because I'm a longtime electric car owner and driver and advocate. But it's a documentary that basically documents the birth and death of the electric car from 1996 through 2005. It's a story that people really need to hear because most Americans didn't even know that these cars existed. Chelsea Sexton here worked for GM and leased out the EV1, which is the car that the film focuses on, because it was a magnificent electric car and incredibly futuristic car, and she actually leased more cars than any GM specialist in America. Chelsea, tell us about the EV1. Well, the EV1 was the first production electric vehicle put on the road by a major auto manufacturer. The state of California actually recognized GM's capability to make an electric car, and we're looking for a solution to our air quality problems out here anyway, and figured they'd make a mandate, and that all of the top auto manufacturers, if they wanted to continue doing business in the state of California, would have to build and market electric vehicles. And they did so. But at the same time, while they were to the letter meeting the law, they were also fighting it tooth and nail and ultimately ended up rounding up all of the electric vehicles that they could, in GM's case, every one of the EV1s, and crushing them in order to uh, keep them from getting out there. That's after they took taxpayer money for about $13,000 per car, somewhere in that range is what taxpayers actually paid. They created these cars. They worked. There were zero emissions, zero use of fossil fuels, no gas, no oil, no oil changes, no tune ups, uh, no motors, no engines, no transmissions, no plugs or valves or tanks or distributors. Everything that anybody would want in a car, but GM, just like you'd expect for GM, no vision. I mean, you talk about it in incestuous stupidity management process. That defines GM today. That's why they're going to go out of business. So they had this thing. Everybody that said, do you want one, said, yeah, I want one. As a matter of fact, there was a waiting list for it, wasn't there, to, to even get one? 5,000 people were waiting for the car? Yeah, there was there was there were multiple waiting lists for the different cars, but in the case of the EV1, there was a waiting list of about 4 to 5,000 people. But all of those different components that you named that the car didn't have, and it did have an electric motor, but it didn't have an engine. 
that sort of represents all the all the divergent interests of folks who would not have necessarily been enthusiastic about giving the American public this particular option. So, I mean, we know who killed the electric car, GM themselves. And I, I can't call it stupidity because there's a clear design here, isn't there? They knew they could sell their SUVs and make, what, ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 per car, where if they sell just a regular car, much less an EV1, they're going to make about $1,200 per car. Isn't that what it was all about? That's definitely part of it. And I would also stipulate it was not just General Motors. I oh, mean, I understand. Toyota and Nissan and even the greenest car companies in the eyes of the American public were just as bad about taking their cars back and crushing them. And it's not just even the auto companies. I mean, there's a definite amount of politics and, and California administration and federal government and oil companies. I mean, yeah, a- yeah. The story I love is where, uh, I know, Alexander, you don't necessarily love this story, but I love this story, <laughs> where you were arrested oh. March uh, in 2005 for blocking trucks that were going to transport these EV1s to be destroyed. You thought the only thing you could do is engage in civil disobedience. You told the judge that, you know, you weren't going to pay a fine, that you weren't going to perform any more community service because you felt like what you were doing in the protest was community service. I I love that. That's what we should all be doing. That was a courageous thing to do. I thank you for your support in in my civil disobedience, (laughs) but I want to stress that that civil disobedience was done as a last resort. I understand that. The most important things for your listeners to know is that there were eight major car companies who made electric cars and that they have virtually 90% of them have all been crushed, even though they were pretty much new cars in excellent condition with lots of taxpayer money in each of them. When Chelsea found out the last 78 EV1s were being stored in behind a lot in Burbank, California, she gathered together EV advocates and drivers for a vigil, a 24-hour, seven days a week vigil, where we would try and protect these cars because we had found out that they were going to the crusher. After she organized, along with other advocates, to purchase these cars, we raised $1.9 million in four days, and we also agreed to release GM of all liability and all future parts maintenance, etc., and we were met with not even a no, mostly just ignoring us. So uh, we continued the vigil, and on the 27th day, GM sent trucks to start hauling these 78 last uh, last of the EV1s away, and that is when the civil disobedience occurred. It's time for Ask Dr. Meadow. Rachel Meadow is a doctor. Just not that kind of doctor. 
since tens of thousands of Gustav Klimt aficionados <laughs> seek her advice every day, we thought it would be a public service to give Americans a chance to ask questions of Dr. Rachel Maddow. So if there's something you've been dying to know, send us an email at maddowonline.com or give us a call at 212-871-8173. Today's question is from Jennifer in Massachusetts, who asks, Dear Dr. Maddow, I'm a cashier, and when it comes time to bag groceries, customers and I often ponder the dilemma of which kind of grocery bags are better for the environment when they forget their canvas bags. <laughs> Paper or plastic? We can't come up with a definitive answer. Help, please. Jennifer oh. in Massachusetts. This is serious. Wow. Like this is this is this is a liberal minefield. Yeah. 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 This is a, this is a hardcore question and this is going to be a hugely controversial ask Dr. Maddow. <laughs> I can feel it right now because I do actually there are there are good arguments to make on both sides, mm-hmm. but I have I have a preference. I I'm going to give you an answer. I'm going to tell you paper or plastic. Drum roll. The hard truths here. Okay. All right. Plastic grocery bags take less energy, a lot less energy to produce than paper bags do. Mm. It takes more than four times as much energy to manufacture a paper bag. Four times more energy four times. to make a paper than, right. than a plastic bag. Paper bag manufacturing also generates less air and water pollution. P- sorry. Now I'm getting confused. Ah. Ah, plastic bag manufacturing also generates less air and water pollution. Plastic bags also take up much less space in landfills. Technically, uh, it's true paper bags degrade, theoretically, much faster than plastic bags because a paper bag can degrade in about a month. Here's the problem with that, though. The only problem is that many modern landfills are sealed quite tightly to prevent water and ground contamination. There's a lack of light. There's a lack of water. There's a lack of oxygen. All the things needed to degrade the paper bag. Uh So if that's the basis for you're wanting to go with paper instead of plastic, and that's probably the best argument for it, in modern landfills now, you uh, sometimes can't really come up with a big standard difference between how fast they degrade. And that's kind of the best argument for paper over plastic. Advantage, plastic. The truth is, neither is good for the environment. Uh Pick the bag you are most likely to reuse. Yes. People, generally speaking, are, I think, more likely to reuse a plastic bag than a paper one, but you never know. Um, I am going to uh, come down on the side of plastic here. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir. Yes, yes. Yes. Plastics. Plastics. Yeah. Um, here, let me give you the devil's argument side, the devil's okay. advocate side of it. If you want the other good arguments for paper, plastic bags are made from polyethylene, which is made from petroleum and natural gas, non-renewable resources. Paper bags are also easier to recycle. Most recycling plants don't even bother to recycle plastic shopping bags. Both of those things are true. But when you weigh it all out on balance, the energy thing makes a bigger difference to me. And I'm going to go with, with plastic. I know. Send your hate mail now. Mrs. Robinson, are you trying to seduce me? (laughs) Wait, wrong one. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, doctor. Thank you, plastics. Remember, if you have a question for Dr. Maddow, call us at 212-871-8173 or send us an email at maddowonline.com for Ask Dr. Maddow. Thank you very much, Kent. I know. I can feel, you know, I feel nervous to have gone out on this limb. I know. You committed. The big deal, though, is the reusing thing. If, yeah, if, every, if everybody in New York City alone used one less grocery bag per person per year, they would reduce five million pounds of waste out of our, out of our, our waste piles. There you go. Yeah. Reusing. Do that. Yeah. 
but who does? Really? <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. I know it's a difficult thing. Osama Wolf, China floats, Bush sinks, the scheme to steal 08, no child's left behind, and other dispatches from the front lines of the class war. No child's behind, left. <laughs> no child's behind. And you know yeah. what? If you bring me a title that long again, you're not coming on. That's right. Just... <laughs> no, that's, it's the longest title in, in publishing uh, history. But if people take away one new bit of information from this book, I would like them to understand the realities of the economics behind oil. Ah, yeah. And will you talk about petro Dollars. dollars, right. If we can grasp that, we get a whole different picture I'll of make it simple for you. Do you think that George Bush runs around in that golf cart on the Crawford Ranch with King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia? Well, he does it because he's afraid of horses. But do you think he ferries him around in that cart because he wants Abdullah's oil? Abdullah can't drink the stuff. His harem can't drink the stuff. I mean, he's got to sell it to us and to China and Japan. What we want is not the petrodollars. What George needs and what he's addicted to, uh, excuse me, not the, he's not addicted to the petroleum, he's addicted to the petrodollars, the money we give to the Saudis, and we must get it back. Remember the film network? Mr. Beale, the Arabs have taken billions of dollars from us, and we must get it back. And that's what George is doing, okay? Last year, the Saudis and the Emirates sucked out a quarter trillion dollars from us for charges for, our, for oil. And they gave back to us a third of a trillion. In other words, the entire sum plus to lend us money for our treasury bills, to buy up uh, U.S. investments like the ports. Um, and all of this funds George Bush's $2 trillion spending spree. Bush says he spent the extra $2 trillion stone sober. Maybe he did. But someone's got to pay for it. And every single penny was lent to us from abroad. Every penny of it not from the U.S., but from abroad, the keystone being the petrodollars. It's a straight-up deal. Abdul lends us a trillion. We lend him the 82nd Airborne to stay in power. I mean, there's, a, there's by the way, there's a shadow, dark shadow cost beside the blood. Uh, Abdullah, despite the Quran's prohibition on charging interest, gets a nice big pound of flesh on the money he lends us. Our interest rates are up high. And I don't care what they tell you about General Motors, that it's greedy auto workers that have put them out of business demanding health insurance when they've retired. Can you imagine? No. If you look at the numbers, General Motors is dying from interest rate charges. That's what they're dying from. It goes back to the petrodollars. And that takes us to the chapter of the assassination of Hugo Chavez, because Chavez, see, all the oil we're running out of, the, out of the light, cheap stuff of Saudi Arabia, and we're moving to the big, old, heavy oils, which are in Venezuela. Venezuela has a lot more oil than Saudi Arabia. Well, in fact, yeah. since you bring up Venezuela, and I know mm. we're, we're going to have to go there, I'm going to reveal my political naivete, and I want you to take me here. Okay. President Bush is, is heading a sinking ship. His own party is fractured. His ratings are in the toilet, you know, akin to Richard Nixon's right before he resigned. Mm-hmm. 
Would it not be a victory for him to say, I have an offer from Venezuela's Hugo Chavez to pay only $50 a gallon, and I am saying to those of you who are robbing us blind, go away, I'm going with it. He'd be a hero in the eyes of the American people. Yeah, but he wouldn't be a hero in the eyes of the people that elected him. When, when Bush came to office, Clinton had left us with 18 to $20 a barrel oil, cheaper than peanut butter. This guy comes into office, and we end up with $72 a barrel oil, three bucks at the pump. And you say that's to his liking. Mission accomplished. If you look at the oil documents that I see, and that you actually I actually show you in the book, I mean, real investigative reporting. Here's the documents, guys. <laughs> you know, real gumshoe stuff. Bad jokes. Good documents, bad jokes. But... If you see this stuff, you realize it's all about maintaining the price of oil and getting those petrodollars back. Now, Hugo Chavez, has, Hugo Chavez actually spoke to me for BBC TV, made the offer through BBC and me to Bush. I'll cut the price of oil one-third. We've got to have a deal. First, peace between us, okay, brothers, okay, across the water. Second, you ain't getting the petrodollars. That's the Venez- money you give to the Venezuelans stays in Venezuela and stays in Latin America. For our country, we're not going to be an oil colony anymore. And to prove the point, Chavez withdrew $20 billion from the U.S. Federal Reserve and lent it to Argentina and Ecuador. That is why the response of our administration was not, hey, thanks, cheap oil, great. The response of our administration came through Reverend Pat Robertson, which was, you know, Hugo Chavez thinks we're trying to assassinate him, and I, I think we ought to just go ahead and do it. Yes, so made they made quite an impact with that. In the response to cheap oil, which would be, by the way, a, an incredible lifesaver for the U.S. economy. A million jobs would be saved. It's not just, you're, you know, Annie, you're filling up your yellow Hummer cheaper. It would save American industry, in particular the auto industry. Bush's response is a bullet for Chavez. And this is why we are the victims of this international gang war over oil and it's over the petrodollars but it, they're not they didn't go into iraq i mean this is the most interesting thing i think i found in my investigation for bbc and for the book we didn't go into iraq to get the oil to get cheaper oil we went in to make sure that we wouldn't get cheaper oil to sequester it so that the idea that the big oil companies and you know i was wired talking to these guys and so when they later denied that they said these things to me i was able to say what part of the, i'm not kidding you they 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 threatened to sue harper's magazine over my reports saying they never spoke to me but what they're explaining to me is we go into iraq to make sure that there is not too much oil coming out which will bust the oil market so much oil that would flood the market bring down the price of oil, and, you know, bring down the profits of ExxonMobil. These guys, you know, the, the CEO of Shell Oil said to me, we have no ideology. International oil companies have no ideology. We have a bottom line. Not immoral, they're amoral. Yeah, you know. You can read many of Greg Palast's articles at gregpalast.com. Got no reason for the things I fear, the things that plague me when I see and Dimes a nickel and a nickel's none I'll throw myself into the Sunday sun A summer Sunday when you went insane You said you're going but I said I came I'll throw in oranges and an apple cart The ties that bind are tearing me apart Jamie says, turn off the radio Jamie says, turn off the light Jamie says, turn off the video You beat yourself up Let it go, 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 
About a month ago, when I was in Seattle, Washington, I had the good fortune of meeting our next guest. Uh, and I am not the kind of person who often just meets congressmen, so I get very excited about it when it happens. Uh, Jay Inslee and I ended up having a great conversation. Energy policy, the war, uh, Jack Murtha, Democratic strategy this fall for the midterm elections. And while I was standing there thinking, uh, while I was standing there talking to him in Seattle, I thought, this is a great conversation. Maybe we should try to do this on the radio machine. Uh, so here he is, Representative Jay Inslee. He's the Democratic congressman from Washington State's first congressional district. Representative Inslee joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. this morning. Hi, Jay. Good morning. Nice to talk to you again. It's great. It's great to have you there. You know, uh, Air America had the keys to the city in Seattle a week or a month ago, so it's good <laughs> to hear you again. It was very, that big standing ovation thing was very overwhelming. I, I just don't want you to move into my district, run against me. I'll tell you, you got that the biggest standing O in Seattle history. You know, there's uh, there's no congressional district, uh, state, or country in the world that would elect me, so don't <laughs> worry about it. <laughs> you know, I want to I talk energy policy first, because uh, you're the guy who's really behind this new apology. Hello energy project, and it's not getting a ton of national attention yet, but I think it ought to. Can you explain what this project is and why you've introduced the bill uh, that would promote it? You bet. And when the country turns the people's house back to the people uh, next uh, fall, I think the new Apollo project is going to get a lot of attention. Yeah. The reason is, is that it is very, very clear that this country needs a new direction in energy policy, and we can't have sort of nibbling, small little baby steps. We need a bold, visionary energy policy that is akin to what Kennedy did when he said we were going to go to the moon in 61 in 10 years, and we did it. And we need a new Apollo project that now basically says we're going to, we're going to achieve an energy future for the country that will free us from our addiction to Saudi Arabia oil, that will stop global warming, and will grow the jobs in this country that ought to be grown here rather than just in Germany and Japan and, and solar cells and, and fuel-efficient cars and the like. So what I have introduced is H.R. 2828. It's called the New Apollo Energy Project Act, and basically it will, it will use the entire uh, penalty of, of tools we have in our federal kit to develop a new federal uh, energy policy that will not allow the oil and gas industry just to keep us addicted to fossil fuels. Well, it's, I mean, all of the stuff that's in this bill is exactly the kind of thing that, that, that everybody wants to become more a part of our energy foundation. Wind, solar, geothermal, biomass, even harnessing the power of the oceans, coal using carbon sequestration technology, the idea of trying to pursue some kind of clean coal, if that's possible. It's all this high-tech, clean, uh, you know, no foreign oil-dependent stuff that sounds good to everybody. The problem is, is is that it all sounds really, really expensive to develop. I know that you are, are, are pitching this as a, as a revenue-neutral bill, that this is not something uh, that would cost a lot of money to do, that this bill can pay for itself. That's the part of it that I don't get, because this all seems like really expensive stuff. Well, I would say two things. First off, the bill is totally revenue-neutral. It's paid for by repealing some of the giveaways of the royalty relief that we gave away uh, to, the, to the gas and oil companies, $7 billion of royalty relief. Uh, we, we need to restore that. And that's when they are, they're extracting... They're extracting stuff. our gas and oil and paying us zero dollars for it, taking our gold and not paying us a dollar for it. So that's that they're doing on thing. federal land. I've never understood how that passed in the first well, place. Well, believe but, yeah. me, it, it's one of the great rip-offs in, in American history. The, the second thing is we, we are restoring some of the, the tax cuts that are given to corporations to encourage them to move jobs offshore, which is... 
ridiculous tax policy to encourage corporations to move jobs out of sorts, so it's paid for. But the bigger issue I want to talk about is that when you adopt an energy efficiency policy, over the long run you save money. This is, this is something when you use energy uh, intelligently, uh, if, you, if you have more fuel-efficient cars, if you have more fuel-efficient and energy-efficient homes, if you have more energy-efficient computers, you over the long term save money. Let me give you an example. British Petroleum, and I know this is kind of a shocker, but British Petroleum uh, four years ago decided they were going to meet their Kyoto CO2 uh, uh, global uh, warming gas emission targets. They decided we're going to do what Kyoto said countries will do. In three years, they reduced their CO2 emissions to meet Kyoto targets and saved $300 million in their energy costs. As a company in terms of as how they company. operate as a company. As a company okay. in their own internal operations. And I think that is a shining light. It's interesting. You know, we, we beat up on the oil and gas companies a lot because they've, they've abused a lot of energy policy here, frankly. But here was an oil and gas company that said, we can meet Kyoto targets. If British Petroleum can meet Kyoto targets, why can't George Bush see the wisdom of having a more efficient use of our energy so we don't waste it? You it know, just goes out our smokestack. Pro- I mean, and I applaud BP for doing the right thing internally in terms of their 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 internal policies as a company. It kind of reminds me, though, of Denny Hastert driving that hydrogen car one block to his suburban, right, when he was doing his photo op on, on energy policy stuff. Because, you know, the, the BP, the, I want them to be a clean company. I want everybody to be a, a green company and a clean company in terms of how they use energy. The problem is I don't want petroleum to be the basis of our economy and our energy and system anymore. And it doesn't are. need to be. It doesn't need yeah. to be. And there's an interim step. The interim step is to have more fuel-efficient uh, cars. And as you know, had we simply continued the progress we made in fuel mileage, we were making in the late 70s and early 80s, we'd actually be free of Middle Eastern oil today, which is an incredible statistic to me. If we had simply continued the rate of increase in our mileage uh, due to the Carter efforts, President Carter's efforts, if we hadn't fallen off the wagon during the Reagan administration and, and zeroed out any further improvement, we would be free today of Middle Eastern oil. So we know this works. But the second step is obviously to move to a more biofuels-oriented uh, economy, as Brazil has done. Forty percent of all the fuel that, that drives cars and trucks in Brazil are now based on ethanol, and they did that by adopting a flex fuel policy where mm-hmm. they, they demand that car manufacturers provide Brazilians the, the choice where you can choose to burn gasoline or ethanol. And when you do that, you immediately put the consumer in charge of industrial energy, not the oil and gas companies. We need to adopt the same template here because we got this tremendous growth of ethanol, not just corn-based ethanol, but but uh, cellulosic ethanol, which is three to four times more effective than the current ethanol that we use. Mm-hmm. So we've got a bright future if we will use our heads. And the paradigm I use on this is that is the answer to this is above our shoulders, not below our feet. We've got to get these cellulosic ethanol plants up and running. The first one is ready, the first commercial plant is ready for construction now in southeastern Idaho. Mm-hmm. And we can go the same route Brazil. You know, Brazil can do it. They, shoot, their soccer team didn't even win this year. So we ought to be able, <laughs> we ought to, be able to meet their energy, uh, their energy plant. Jay Inslee, let me ask you this, though, strategically. Thinking about the prospects of Democrats taking over the House uh, this November, the prospect of a Democratic-led House, possibly even a Democrat, Democratic-led Senate, and, and issues like this finally getting a fair hearing, finally getting attention, energy independence becoming something we actually work toward rather than, than just slogan about. When that happens, if and when that happens, who is going to argue against this kind of stuff? 
other than the oil companies. I know the oil companies have, you know, a zillion lobbyists per congressman, right? And they'll push all of their interests. But other than the oil companies who have the obvious thing to lose, who's going to be against this? Well, there's a a fellow who lives down on Pennsylvania Avenue who I think (laughs) will probably be the last person on earth who doesn't get it when it comes to global warming. And he'll be in there with sandbags and pitchforks defending the, the last gas-drenched energy policy in the I, world. I lump him in with the oil companies, so though, will, I mean, he's will, our booster, you know, right? That, that will be, uh, we'll have to surmount that hurdle. But I do believe that this next February, we will be in a position for the first time to be able to take major steps towards this new Apollo Energy Project. And I do believe it is, if not, if not uh, the, then one of the great challenges for this country, which we can surmount. Again, we did this in Apollo. When Kennedy said we're going to the moon, everyone sort of scoffed, saying, you know, we, we haven't even invented Tang yet at that point. Our rockets were blowing up. We'd launched a softball. But now we are going to be capable next February, if people, uh, you know, get involved in the streets this November and get people to vote, mm. we're going to be in a position to really take steps forward. I'm very excited about it. This is one of the six things towards a uh, new clean energy future for the country. So, you know, it's in our it's in our tool bag. We're ready to go, 6 and 06, and uh, I think there's a good chance that will happen next fall. I guess there's no chance that this will come up before the midterms. Uh, you would uh, you'd lose a lot of money betting the Republicans are going to have an epiphany <laughs> on this. I, you know, I'd welcome them to do it. There oh, are God, a couple yeah. of my I- friends in the Republican caucus who get this, but unfortunately it's below, uh, below a half dozen. So uh, we need a change in Congress to get a new clean energy policy for this country. Jay Inslee, thanks for joining us today. We look forward to having you back. Thanks Good a lot. See you in Seattle again. Yeah, we'll do. Jay Inslee represents Washington's first congressional district, Democratic member of Congress. Uh, smart guy, and he's the lead sponsor of this new Apollo Energy Project. Right now it's got about, mm, I think, 31 co-sponsors, something like that, in the House. But there's no way that this thing can come up uh, until the House flips, until the House goes to the Democrats. It's something that's inconceivable that people would not be in favor of this thing if they didn't have some financial stake in an oil company somewhere or maybe an oil tanker named after them. But uh, this kind of common sense stuff is a part of a very sensible Democratic agenda for trying to take back the House in November. And when uh, I think one of the things that doesn't get enough attention when people consider that political question of whether the Democrats can take the House, one of the most important things that does not get considered is the strength of the ideas of the people who are in the House right now, who have legislation ready to go if the Democrats can only get the reins. From behind these walls I hear your song Oh sweet words The music that you play lights up my world Sweet is that Um, also, Kent, the whole electric car thing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of political issues about the electric car. There's that new movie, Who Killed the Electric yes. Car, about all this, about all the politics there. One of the undeniable sociological things about the electric car is the nerd factor. Yeah. yeah. Part of me wants one. Yeah. That's my problem. Well, you know, part of you is a nerd. Me too. <laughs> Pretty big part. This, anyway. is, this is why we like each other so much. Yeah. Then. We're both dorks. We wouldn't, we've, had, we've had no trouble with the EV1, the electric mm-hmm. car, right? Love it. Quiet. But how about the new vehicle being unveiled? 
unveiled today from Tesla Motors. It's a four-year-old Silicon Valley startup based in California. They've raised $60 million. They've spent about $25 million. They have developed a two-seat Roadster that's going to be unveiled today. Yeah. Selling between uh, 85 and 100 grand. You're making me want it. Go it on. goes from zero to 60 in four seconds. Oh, that's like Ferrari 599 Fiorano. Like, that's Porsche 911 Turbo. That's the latest that's Lamborghini. That's faster than the space shuttle. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> I know. One of the reasons they say that it's so fast it's for its acceleration is because something about the fact that it's electric means that you don't actually have to shift into second gear until the car hits 65. Nice. And not having to shift speeds up your zero to whatever acceleration. You know, but... A big part of it is that awe-inspiring noise of going that fast. If you're an electric car, it's, mm, mm, you know, 160 miles there. There it goes right on by. I just got I just got smoked by something silent. Exactly. You can oh sneak up on people at 200 miles an hour. I don't know what its top speed is, but that acceleration is incredible. Here's the details. It's supposed to go about 250 miles on a single charge. It uses uh, lithium-ion batteries, which is the same kind found in laptops. Yeah. And it comes with a charger uh, with a kit that allows you to connect to a 240-volt circuit. If you do that, you can charge it from totally dead to fully charged in three and a half hours. That's not bad. You can also charge it on your normal household 110-volt outlet, but that would take a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. But you use no gas. This isn't a hybrid. Zero gas. Wow. Imagine passing a Ferrari in one of these. Excuse me. You're done. So amazing. They say that even if you if you figured out the cost of electricity, mm-hmm. like for charging with either the 240 or the 110, it would work out to the equivalent of getting 150 miles a gallon. Yes. While going I'm zero sure to 60 oil, in four seconds. I'm sure the oil companies are delighted by this new car. <laughs> How cool is this? They're going to start taking orders today. Uh, the company is called Tesla Motors. They hope to begin deliveries in the middle of next year. And while this sounds like a supercar, eighty-five grand is a ridiculous amount That's... of money to spend on a car. But if you have that kind of money, why wouldn't you spend it on this? I don't know. They hope to sell four, four to five thousand of these over three years. You know, if I, you they know need what? a spokesperson, they sell those too. oh my god, I bet they'll, they'll sell them, them today. Yeah. If they need a dumpy, dorky, lesbian spokesperson... Test driving. There's two seats. Do you know what I'm thinking? Oh, my God. (laughs) You're not a lesbian dork, though. (laughs) I'll ride in the car with you. Come on. We'll see what we can do. So we have arrived at the segment of the show where I either say something... Uh, dramatic and profound having to do with the subject matter of the show or um, something completely not dramatic or profound at all, uh, usually self-indulgent or uh, self-promotional in in one way or another. Today, however, all of that is getting put on hold as I make a surprise announcement, even a surprise to me, that there has been a triumphant return after a two and a half month hiatus of my very favorite podcast in the whole world called Wasting Time at Work. I've talked about it on the show before, so many of you have heard of it and and know of it. Uh, So if you have already checked it out, be aware that they have come back. And uh, if you recall, I uh, encouraged all of you before to write them nasty letters 
demanding that they return. So just to be safe, I'm going to go ahead and take credit for the fact that they have come back. Um, no basis for that, but as I said, just to be safe. So, and, and then of course, there are many of you who haven't heard of it. Uh, if you're new listeners and whatnot, you can find it by searching for Wasting Time at Work, either in iTunes or uh, anywhere else. I'm sure it, it pops up lots of places. The website that you can find them is at lovebumppoly.com. Love like love, bump like speed bump, poly like wants a cracker.com. And um, they are... Uh, my my all-time favorite podcast they're hilarious and they're only about 10 minutes each so there's no excuse for not keeping up on them i guarantee that you will not regret checking them out all right now that i got that out of the way you know i just uh you know i was so blown away that uh that i i I saw their new episode pop up that i i couldn't i couldn't restrain myself from uh making a big deal about it. But anyways, now that that's out of the way, I thought I'd tell this just little story I thought was pretty interesting. I have, this is where we get back to the self-indulgent part, just so you know. Um, I've had a frapper map posted at the website for a while. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically a map of the world and you can go and register yourself there. And then a little icon shows up where you live and you can see where all of the other listeners to the show live, you know, anyone else who's registered. And then there's a, a message board and, but also a little chat room window. And, um, so I've had this map up for, for quite a while. And whenever anybody, uh, registers to, to join the map, I get an email and I have to go to the map and approve them as a new member uh, just as a way of keeping out uh, spammers and other riffraffs and such. So a couple of days ago, I get a couple of those emails. I go to the Frapper map to approve them. And lo and behold, something is going on that I've never seen before in the whole time it's been up. There's a conversation going on in the chat room. And, you know, so of course I show up and it's my screen name pops up and everyone recognizes me because, you know, I'm the guy who does the thing that brought them all there in the first place. And they, oh, hey, it's, it's him. It's hippie. And which as an aside is uh, sad that uh, people choose to abbreviate my name as hippie seeing as uh, I'm, I'm specifically, uh, calling myself not a hippie, just one who sympathizes with hippies. But anyways, so, you know, I join in the conversation and have lots of fun. You know, there's like four people in there. I was baffled by that. And I told them, you know, I've never seen anybody in here before. This is really exciting. And I don't even have to tell you how the conversation went. I mean, if you just had to guess, you could write it down yourself and you'd be right. You know, you come in and everyone's just meeting each other and it's some niceties, what you up to, uh, just hanging out, doing some laundry, you know, no big deal. And 
you know, that moves on to, you know, uh, what, are your, what are your plans, you know, what are you working on? And then, naturally, due to the, you know, content matter of the show, politics comes in, you know, oh, you know, where are you from, Texas? Oh, how's Tom DeLay doing? Is he still on the ballot or what? And, oh, did you hear about this scandal? And, you know, of course, quickly, what do you expect where a bunch of liberals jumps right into conspiracy theories? Have you heard of this conspiracy theory? Have you seen this movie? And so on and so forth. It starts getting a little bit later. You know, I'm over here on the West Coast and you know, the sun's going down even even here. It's, uh, the conversation starts getting a little loopy. You know, we're getting to know each other and uh, it devolves quickly into sex and debauchery and deep dark confessions and uh so on and so forth until it's just uh you know a, a conservative nightmare of a conversation and so anyway but it was it was lots of fun and i was i was really surprised that it happened you know of course it wasn't planned totally spontaneous and so i just thought i should give it a mention you know if, if you're interested in joining in on something like that uh if you're on the board already and haven't checked in in a while, or if you're if you're interested in being in, on the board, it's you know super simple and totally free to sign up. All, all those good things, um, and you know you, you never know who you're going to meet. If uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe now that I am talking about it, if if you guys actually uh, come and visit, then there might might be uh, some pretty regular conversations going on. Uh, you know, you can make friends all across the world and they're all going to think just like you because they all listen to an ideologically driven show such as mine and uh and certainly you know i i definitely had fun talking to those guys when uh when we were doing that a few days ago and so i'll, I'll probably even be checking in myself just to see what's going on so you never know who you're going to meet maybe even me so if you are interested then just go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com and there's a link under it's it's in the support the show section and it's it just says frapper map join the frapper map something to that effect and um you know could be fun who knows we'll see and finally there has been a huge huge development in the future of the show the the prospects for success the the way I interact with my listeners, uh, the the way I talk about certain subjects, everything has just been turned on its head. Uh, the way the way the listeners are going to be able to affect the future of the show, I have a huge announcement to make, but unfortunately that's getting pushed until tomorrow, uh, and uh, it's all because wasting time at work came back, and uh, you know what am I going to do? It's uh when when you're talking about news you got to make your priorities and um so say la vie and just very very quickly before i go a reminder that next week the show will be on hiatus but stick around i will be posting five of my very favorite shows from the past so if you're a new listener that's a week you definitely don't want to miss it's uh, it's all the best that uh, that I can come up with all in one week. So that'll be next week, and uh, until tomorrow and the big announcement, 
uh, as as much as I ever have a big announcement. Have a good one, everybody. Hi, this is Shelley of the podcast Citizen Against Lies. I'm a proud member of the Progressive Podcast Network. Visit us at newmediarevolution.org. We are podcasting information and attitude 365 days a year. Why? Because knowledge is power. Be powerful.